Good morning. When you first learned to ride a bicycle, uh, maybe you can all remember back that far. Um, and I'm not talking about a tricycle, like that's the stage before a bicycle often. Um, tougher to fall over on a tricycle, but when you're on a bicycle, you start typically with some training wheels and a coach. Coach is often your parent, right? Standing alongside her parents, maybe, standing alongside you and, and maybe running along beside you as you first start to ride this bicycle and they, you know, they encourage you in what you're doing and they maybe correct you in the things that you're not doing or doing that you shouldn't be doing, right? Uh, maybe you, if you have children yourself, then you can recall little ones on that bike and they're, they're pedaling backwards and not going anywhere and frustrated. And why? Well, that's because they're actually putting on the brakes and they don't realize that, right? And you talk them through that whole process. Um, then there comes that moment. The moment when the training wheels come off. And that parent comes along beside you coaching you, holds on, holds you up, runs alongside, and then at some point, let's go. And you're riding on your own. <clears throat> that moment for me has come. For two and a half years now, Jared has been coaching and mentoring me, as I know that he's been coaching and mentoring many of you as well. But the training wheels have now been removed from my pastoring bike, and I'm riding on my own, as it were. Anticipation of this moment has been both overwhelming and a little unnerving, and I've had a little bit of a rough month uh, the past several weeks. Um, I've struggled a little bit, but God has been talking to me and showing me things to remind me that I am and that we are in his hands, and he loves us. He will protect us, and he will provide for us, and I need to trust him. I've already shared uh, with a number of you here this little word of encouragement, but I want you all to hear it. Um, <laughs> we plan our sermon schedule months in advance. We have already been talking, uh, Chris and, and Jermaine and myself, about the fall and where we're going. We've got the summer planned out and working towards that. And uh, so we've got this schedule, and in the last month, that schedule has been messed up twice. And that frustrates me. I'm a little bit A-type personality, and maybe that's why, you know, the teaching works for me or vice versa. Maybe it's because I'm a teacher that I got frustrated. But we have plans, right? Don't mess with the plans, right? Throws me off. And, uh, and then God showed me this. Here we are. It's the very first Sunday after Jared and Jen's departure. And our sermon topic is what? Press on. All right, and that's not a coincidence. That is not a coincidence. And it wouldn't necessarily have fallen that way if those interruptions in the schedule hadn't happened. So, <clears throat> I think that God wants you and I to know that he is sovereign and he knows exactly what he's doing in D.C., in Fellowship Oshawa, and in every other work of his around the world until his kingdom plans are fulfilled. Amen? Yeah. So today we're going to take a look at Paul's exhortation to the church at Philippi to press on individually in their faith walk with God and collectively as a church as they point the lost world to Jesus the Savior and King. That's our task too. We are tasked with pointing the world to our King, our Savior, Jesus. We've got exactly the same job, so it's very relevant for us. Now, just before we dive into the passage, I do have for you this morning a very special treat. We are part of the fellowship's network, and as a, as a consequence of that, we have access to a number of resources and personnel that I am still learning about. 
And within our own network, I discovered a famous Italian Olympic marathoner. Marathoning, right? It's totally appropriate to this topic of press on. So uh, he agreed to do a short video interview, and I would like to play that for you now. Good morning, and welcome to Running With Endurance. I'm your host, Michael Vanslot, and this morning we have a very special guest. He's a strikingly handsome Italian man, a former Olympic marathoner, and 1981 gold medalist. Please welcome Giovanni Marco. Ah, thank you so much for having me here. My mama, she would be so proud. Well, Giovanni, we thank you for taking the time to come in. We recognize that someone as famous as you probably has a very busy schedule. So let's get right down to it. Um, our listeners would, would really like to know about the experience of running a marathon. We understand from ancient Greece that marathon runners were known to run buck naked so that no clothing hindered them whatsoever. Thank goodness it's not like that anymore, eh? No kidding, my friend. If I would you suggest such a thing, my papa, he would have said, what, have you lost your mind? Well, Giovanni, here's a question our listeners would like to know about. What kind of training do you do in an endurance run, a marathon? Well, for one thing, I study. I study the race so I know what I'm going to be up against, and, uh, and I practice in the practice, uh, and I get endurance, so I, when I have to run a long time, I can, uh, and I practice the heels. The heels, Michael. Yeah. The heels. Because when I get to a heel in the race, uh, then my body is strong and fit, uh, and I can run fast, and I can run a long time. Uh, it, uh, it is not something that I like, but, you know, that's discipline. Well, clearly, Giovanni, it takes someone very serious about the end goal to be willing to invest uh, as intensely as you're willing to do. But a, a marathon is not all physical, is it? There's a big part of an endurance run that's mental. Am I, am I right? You're, you're so right, Michael. Uh, at the start of the race, my whole body just wants to say, let's go. Uh, but I have to slow myself down mentally. Uh, or else I burn myself out in no time and I run very slow. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I do is I, I, when I'm tired, uh, I think about the finish line. Uh, I forget about being tired, I forget about what's behind, and I think about the win, the end, the goal. Uh, I just want to be able to say, at the end, I'm the winner. Impressive, Giovanni. And your many accomplishments are a clear indicator that you are a winner. Uh, winner, Ooh, sorry. Uh, last thing, Giovanni. Um, uh, races can be won or lost by parts of a second, and so making a mistake could actually cost you a race. What do you do when you realize, oh no, I've made a mistake? It's uh, happened to everyone, you know. Uh, you, you just have to recognize what happened and uh, keep it going. Uh, it's back to the mental thing. Uh, forget about what's behind and focus on what's ahead. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. You want to be a genuine competitor and complete the race? Then training and discipline are required, both physically and mentally. You've got to forget about what's behind, focus on what's ahead, and press on. Thanks for tuning in to Running With Endurance. This is Michael Vanslot and Giovanni Marco signing off. Good morning and welcome to... All right. So... Somewhere in North, <laughs> Becky leaves. <laughs>
somewhere in North America. Jared is regretting this. Yeah, anyway. All right. Well, thank you, Giovanni, for your willingness to take time out of your busy schedule to participate in that video interview. Okay, let's take a look at our passage. Uh, turn to Philippians chapter 3, if you would, please, and we're going to start in verse 12. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there are Bibles on the table. Please feel free to use those. And in fact, if you don't own a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take one of those home. That's our gift to you. We want you to have ready access to God's Word. So, starting in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it. Sorry, let me back up just a little bit. Let's go back to uh, verse 10. Because this is really a conversation and we're jumping right into the middle of it so to help with the flow. Verse 10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then he says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Verse 12, the beginning of the passage that we're looking at here, verse 12 tells us our motivation for pressing on. Why do we do it? We are his. It says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We strive for these things, not in order to earn our salvation, because it's already ours. And he, that is Jesus, has made us his. It's not a grit your teeth and get her done kind of thing where you're muscling your way through. It's more of a, a long view perspective. It's the same kind of thing actually that we find in Hebrews 12 verse 2. Hebrews 12 and 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what we've got here is a joy to the journey, even though it was unimaginably difficult. Because Jesus' focus wasn't right here, right now. His focus was not, I'm going to the cross and it's going to be awful. His focus was past that. 
It was long-term. He was looking at the joy he would experience. And you know what that joy was? That joy was having us as his. I don't know if that blows your mind, but it blows mine. That he would consider having me with all my failings and shortcomings. He would consider that such a tremendous joy that he would endure the cross and he would actually just despise the shame. I don't even care about that because what I'm working towards is worth so much more than this. Like that gives me goosebumps thinking about it. God loves you that much. That is, that is it's kind of crazy. So we too can press on through both the sufferings that Paul spoke of in the early verses of this chapter and through our own failings and shortcomings, striving towards sanctification and greater Christ-likeness. We've talked a little bit about sanctification through the last several Sundays, and we certainly were looking at it in the uh, spiritual disciplines, weren't we? I mean, our whole purpose of working through those spiritual disciplines, and they were disciplines, it was training, and sometimes it was hard. The purpose of that was the pursuit of godliness. We want to become more like Jesus Christ. And so in that goal, that's what sanctification is. That's the, the pursuit of becoming more like Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's what this is all about. And it's going to be hard. And it's, we're going to fail. Right? I'm not meaning to be uh, discouraging. I want to be honest with you. I don't want to paint a fluffy picture. Add to that the fact that this, right here, right now, what we've got, this life, this is not the destination. This is really just the journey. The destination is at the end. The race isn't over. We haven't reached the end yet. What did verse 20 say as we read through it? It said, our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. Our citizenship is not here. There's an old hymn, and I don't remember what the, the, the words are exactly, so I'm going to brutally paraphrase it and maybe butcher it a little bit, but it's, it has this concept, I'm just a passing through, right? Um, this, is, this is not my home, right? Now, the word talks in a variety of different ways about us being ambassadors and different things like that, but the concept there is this is not where we're planting and setting down roots, this is not home. We're not home yet. Not if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Right? Home is in heaven. That's home. We're passing through this right now, and we need to be ambassadors of that other country to which we belong. That's what God has tasked us with. So, let's carry on yet. But let's remember, we have not arrived yet. Right? We're still on the journey. So, we've looked at our motivation. We are His. And now our mandate. Paul in verse 14 tells us what our mandate is. We are, like him, to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he's referring to a goal and a prize. There's two things being referenced there. The goal that he's referring to is greater Christ-likeness. We will never reach perfect Christ-likeness this side of eternity. Understand that already right now and then take that pressure off yourself, all right? The goal is not perfection because we ain't going to reach it here. That's the prize of the upward call that he refers to. There will come a day when we will be called up. 
And on that day, we will be transformed. But so long as God leaves us here on this earth, we are striving for godliness. We are working towards that. We are striving towards sanctification, knowing that we'll never achieve perfection here, but with the promise, the sure promise, that it is ours when Jesus calls us home. And in verse 13, he gives us some things to apply as we seek to press on towards sanctification. We reference those in the video, right? To forget what lies behind and to focus on what lies ahead. Now, that doesn't mean that you completely ignore the things that were behind and not learn any lessons from them, right? There's an old saying that says, the one who forgets history is doomed to repeat it, right? Um, and so we need to learn lessons from the things that have happened before, but we can't let them chain us back. That's the important point here. So you might say to yourself, but Mike, come on, how do I do this? How do I just forget what's been done to me or just forget the things that I've done? We had an opportunity to, uh, to speak to someone who had been through some really, really difficult times just this past week, Judy and I. And one of the things that she brought up in that conversation was a, f a phrase that I'm sure is familiar to many of us. Well, I can forgive, but I can't forget. And I would say, yeah, you're right. You can't, not without Christ. But I'm going to say this as well. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have already been saved and you are a child of the King, then there is a godly forgetting, and I'm going to tell you about that just a bit. So two truths we want to consider. Number one, it is important for us to recognize that biblical forgetting is not passive, it is active. That is huge, and I want to elaborate on that a little bit more. In Jeremiah 31, 34, we read this. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Who's speaking here? Who is this? It's God. All right, so let me ask you this question then. Is God capable of letting something slip his mind? No. Does he forget the trouble we find ourselves in and forget to uh, involve himself in that? Does he forget to check in on us and see how we're doing? Of course not, right? We know these are all rhetorical questions. Here's the thing. This means then that his remembering no more is a choice. It is an act of his will. That's really important. Hang on to that because that's huge. And here's the second thing. Remember that Christ Jesus had made you his own, right? We read that in verse 12. The upward call is in Christ Jesus. As a recipient of his forgiveness and salvation, you are in Christ Jesus. None of this stuff that we're going to talk about today is possible without him. All of it is possible in him. And I'm telling you, it has huge hope and confidence to to provide for us. So those are the truths. Forgetting is not passive but active, and you are in Christ Jesus. Here are the actions that come out of that. Number one, 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5 says this, the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Do you hear that? It has divine power to destroy strongholds. Man, there is huge hope in that. That is powerful. We can't do it. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, do you think 
Paul would tell the Corinthians something like this, if it wasn't really possible, like that he's just going to dangle some carrot in front of them, but they'll never actually be able to, to do that? Of course not. What he's telling them is it, the truth that in Christ, we have these weapons available to us. They are powerful weapons. They can destroy strongholds. And a stronghold in Scripture is talking about an enemy stronghold. It's kind of like a foxhole, right? If you think about warfare, soldiers would dig foxholes in and they would dig themselves in and they would be like just below the surface and they'd be able to shoot at you from there. And if they got a chance, if there was heavy f artillery fire at your side, and they had a chance, they'd get up and they'd dig another foxhole just a little closer again, and a little closer again, and they're making inroads. Those are called strongholds. And the enemy does the same thing to you. He whispers lies in your ear, and if you are going to believe them, he develops a stronghold in your life. And often that becomes an area of weakness. What we have in Christ has the power to destroy those strongholds. But here's the part that I really want you to focus on. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Whenever those thoughts and arguments enter your head, whenever you are battered by discouragement, whenever the enemy whispers those lies in your ears, do what God does. Intentionally choose to put those thoughts away. Recognize them for what they are. They are lies. They are not valid because you are in Christ Jesus. I struggled with this for years, especially mentally, the thoughts that would enter my head, and I felt like a prisoner to them. I felt like I have no control over the thoughts that enter my head. What do I do with that? And I didn't know until I came across this verse. Now, how many people have ever seen the um, Spider-Man movie where Venom is introduced? Yes? All right, so there's this nasty, black, elasticy kind of stuff, right? And that's what venom uh, eventually becomes or whatever, right? Um, so that, because uh, I'm, I'm a visual guy, so I imagine that black, nasty thing, that's the lie of the devil. That's what's trying to invade my life, trying to establish a, a stronghold in my mind. Maybe he's reminding me, and unfortunately, there are a lot of these, but reminding me of the ways I have failed. The horrible things that I have said at times, the ways that I have not lived like a child of God, the times when I lived totally contrary to the truth of the Scripture and salvation and may actually have led someone else astray as a consequence of that. I, I bear the weight of those memories but I have been reminded that I am in Christ Jesus and his salvation and forgiveness is sufficient to cover those things and take them away. I regret them and I want to learn lessons from them so that I never do that again. But I'm not going to be held back by those. So I imagine that those things that the enemy reminds me of, well, really? You're going to get up on Sunday morning and you're going to preach. You, the guy who did this. You're going to share with your friend the gospel? Really? You? You? Come on. You know, or the flip side, if you were really a Christian. Anybody ever heard that phrase in their heads? If you were really a Christian, you'd do this. And then he puts burdens on us that we were never meant to bear. So when those things come, and I identify the lie of the enemy, I imagine it like that black writhing thing, and I grab hold of that in my mind... 
It is ugly, it is writhing, and it wants to overwhelm me and establish a stronghold. I grab it and I run to the throne of Jesus and I tell him, Jesus, I am bringing this to you to deal with. I am too weak. I am not capable in my own strength. But I'm going to leave it right here. I am taking it captive to obey Christ. And then I let it go. That is an intentional act of the will to set aside those lies. I might have to do that 15 times a day. That's okay. God doesn't get tired of seeing me in front of his throne. In fact, he's thrilled by the fact that I am taking his word and applying it just as he intended. And he will be for you too. Don't ever think, because that's another lie, don't ever think that God's tired of hearing from you. Just keep going back there, going back there. You need that strength. You need those resources, so go. And I'll tell you this as well, that as I practiced that, I found that over time, I was having to do it less and less. The things that the enemy would plague me with, it was happening less often, and it was having less power over me. I could just go, really? Are we going to do this again? Okay, all right. I'm going to take that lie. It's a lie. I'm not buying it, and I'm bringing it to Christ. You deal with him, because he's already paid for this. It's done. And it became easier, and it didn't burden me like it used to. I want to encourage you with that. Try it. Practice it. If this is something that you struggle with, grab that and just take it to Christ. Second thing, Philippians 1 verse 6 says this, and we read this Back in the beginning when we started this book, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Trust in him that, that this thing we're doing called life and sanctification, it is a marathon more than it is a sprint. You need to believe that he will be faithful to complete the work that he began. Keep reminding yourself that, hey, I am a work in progress. All right, we're not done yet and we'll never be done this side of eternity. It's not referred to as the act of sanctification. It's the process of sanctification. Remember that. Accept the grace that comes with that. You can help yourself by keeping symbols milestones, if you will, of his sanctifying work in your life. I have seen people who are far more artistic than I um, put together, what the heck is it called? A shadow box. Are you familiar with the shadow box? It's like a, a thick frame and it has two panes of glass and inside they put little symbols. Um, maybe it was a period of time in their lives where they were out of work and they were, they just, they just reached out to God and said, God, you know how desperate our situation is. And we need you to provide a job in this situation. And God did. And they took the first loony or $5 bill or whatever it is from that first paycheck. And they said, we're not spending this. It's going in the shadow box. That $5 bill right there is the reminder of how desperate we were and how God intervened and supplied for our needs. That's one idea. Um, I'm not very creative that way. Um, for me, it, it will be stories. I remember stories. I'm a storyteller. Um, and that sticks with me. Look at this, this passage in the Old Testament. Remember when the Israelites, they'd been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and now that generation had died off. That was unfortunately their punishment for not being tr uh, faithful uh, with what God had given them. And... Uh, and now the new generation, the next generation, was ready to enter the promised land. 
Remember, getting out of Egypt was blocked by what? What was the problem trying to get out of Egypt? The Red Sea. All right, so God had to open that up. What was the problem getting into the Promised Land? It was water again. It was the Jordan River. The Jordan River is a big river, and it's pretty deep, and it flows fairly strong. And when they got there, there was a lot of flow. All right, so now there's another barrier for them entering the Promised Land. And what does God do? God parts the water again, right? He sends the, the, the ones that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant into the water, and as their feet touch the water, the water's all piled up upstream. And, uh, and it describes that in that particular passage. And as the, the men stand there with the Ark of the Covenant, the people all pass once again through the river on dry land. Those guys are still standing out there. You know, <laughs> it's getting heavy, guys. Can you pick it up? You know? um, but anyway, they all get over there. And then Joshua says this. Okay, I need one representative from each of the 12 tribes. And I want you to go back out to the middle of the stream. River, sorry. It wasn't a stream. It was a river. Uh, and I want you to get a big rock. Biggest one you can carry. Go grab one. Now, these 12 representatives, the fathers of the 12 tribes, if you will, go back and they grab a big rock. And they carry it with them until their first camping spot that night where, the, where they're told to stop. And they build a pillar, a monument, with those 12 stones. And here's what it says. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Why are these stones piled here? Can you hear that in the kids' voices, right? Uh, the tone of voice there. Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That was the purpose. Consider some symbol. Record a story, some marker of your progress that reminds you that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And like I said before, allow yourself grace. This doesn't mean that you should minimize your sin. But remember that it is a process. You're going to fall. You're going to fumble. You're going to fail. Again, I'm not being unkind. I'm being truthful. Let's recognize that it's going to happen and allow ourselves the grace. The forgiveness is there if we go back and confess it, right? 1 John 1 and 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've already fully bathed. What that means is that our sin was washed off when we came to Jesus for forgiveness. And now we need kind of a foot washing, right? We've gotten some dirt on us from the journey. Maybe it was self-inflicted. Maybe we did that. Maybe something else happened to us. And now we need to be washed, all right? Michael Jordan is a famous basketball legend, of course, and he said, I have missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. Never occurred to you? I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. There's somebody that we don't think about the failures, right? 
we, we know him for all the winnings, for all the successes. Um, and he went, he did basketball, but he also went and played baseball, right? Um, like, who's amazing at two sports? I'm not even amazing at any of them, right? So, uh, so and, and yet, here's the guy who says, this has happened to me. Keep that in mind. And maybe more valuable, somebody said, when you fall on your face, where's the first place you go from there? Your knees. That's a good place for us to be, man. When we fall on our face, our knees is a good place to be. Just spend time in prayer. Talk to God about it. He already knows. It's not like you're going to go, it's not like he's going, what? I didn't see that coming. You know, right? He already knows that you've messed up. He just wants you to talk to him. And the forgiveness is there. For a number of years, I sang competitively with a men's a cappella chorus. They were very high caliber, winning medals in many international competitions. And so naturally, when I joined, I thought I needed to be perfect, or pretty near so, because I didn't want to be that guy that pulled them down, right? The pressure was high. It was self-inflicted pressure. I put that pressure on me. And as a result, the pressure I was putting on me was actually making me sing less well. Is that right? Less well. Anyway, you know what I mean. Steve, our director, uh, caught me by surprise at one point when uh, another new member said this as we were coming up to one of the international, like the world competitions. And he said to Steve, um, how many mistakes are we allowed to make in our performance? Like, is there, is there, essentially what he was asking was, is there any grace? Right? How many mistakes are we allowed to make? Steve said, you're allowed to make as many mistakes as you make. What? But this is the big competition. And this is what he said. The key is not to let those mistakes affect your performance. Note them, acknowledge them, and move on. In that context, allowing them to affect your performance would draw attention to them. And the hope was that the evaluators might not have noticed them. Right? There's a lot going on. We, like some of the songs, a single song that we were singing in competition might be 14 pages in length. There was not only the lyrics, there were all the notes to memorize in multiple parts, and then there was all the choreography that went with it as well. So there was a lot going on, and there were nine judges, three in each of the categories, that were evaluating you in competition. And there were two songs. So there's a lot of stuff going on, and it's possible that somebody could sing a wrong note, and it might just slip by, but not if you go like that. <laughs> or if you go, oh, rats, you know, like you've just drawn attention to the fact that you messed up. Don't. So his, his response instead was, you know, a mistake happens, go, that was weird. Okay, and just continue on, right? Just keep going. In our situation, in our spiritual context, the only one keeping track of our sins is our old enemy, the devil. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. And his problem, though, is that all he's got to keep track with is a small whiteboard from Staples and a dry erase marker that's seen better days. So he's writing stuff down there, and then he comes to God to accuse you, and he says, see? See what Mike's done? Huh? Huh? This is your child. He's just a big screw-up. And Jesus steps up from the throne and says... Father, I've dealt with this. And he goes, and it's gone. And he does the same for you. The devil doesn't stand a chance with us because it's already been paid for at Calvary. 
It's done. Keep that in mind. God wants you to keep those lines of communication open. Don't ever forget about that part. We can't just walk away from it and say, well, it's no big deal. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It caused him to hang on the cross and suffer the punishment in our stead. And we think about the physical punishment because we're human beings. But the reality is that there was a punishment when, when God darkened the earth for three hours. There was something really big that happened there. and We have no concept what that was. Because we don't know what it's like to ever be outside of sin. We're born in sin and shaped in iniquity, says David, right? So, right, our very first experience is already marked in sin. It's in our very nature before we ever do the first thing wrong. Jesus wasn't like that. So, we don't have any concept at all of what it was like to be sinless and have the weight of the sin of every single person across time and the globe placed on him. I don't know what that was like, but he suffered there and it was huge. So we must not ever, ever minimize our sin. But we must remember that we have the freedom, the promise, the invitation to come boldly to the throne room of grace. Right? And find strength to help. And forgiveness. It's there. It's willingly offered to us. Jesus wants our relationship to be good. Those of you, again, that are parents, if you had a little one that's done something wrong, you know it. They just don't know that you know it yet. You encourage your child to come to you, to confess it. Because your child is burdened with that thing too, the guilt of it. It's part of who we are. It's part of how the universe has been made. So we encourage our children to come to us, to confess, to make things right, so that those doors of relationship are wide open again, and it's all good. In that situation, after accusing us, the devil stomps off because there's nothing he can do. Do you know that the father <laughs> smiles with joy? Because when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, right? We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ when we are in him. It's like being in a set of clothes. And somebody looks, in this case, God looks at us. He doesn't see us as much as he sees his son and the righteousness of his son. And the longer we're on the journey and the more we move towards godliness, the further we are in the process of sanctification, the more we look like his son. That's the purpose, right? To transform us into the image of his dear son. That's what God's all about. And so we continue as we go on that process, if we're willing to be part of that process and work towards it, we just continue to bring him more joy. As he said, can you imagine that? We bring a smile to God's face just by reflecting the Lord Jesus in what we do. We feel like we're winning in the sense that we get to be part of this and God's, he's changing me, right? There was an old song, little by little, every day, little by little, in every way, my Jesus is changing me. The second verse says, he's changing me, uh, my precious Jesus, I'm not the same person that I used to be. Praise God. Yeah. Praise God, I'm not the same person that I used to be. And I'm hoping that five years from now, ten years from now, I won't be the same person that I am today. I'm hoping that at that point, I'm going to be even more like Jesus Christ, only because 
I want to bring him more glory in what I do. Lastly, we've talked about our motivation. We've talked about our mandate. Paul also addresses our mentors and our model in this passage. Verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul reminds us that it's never been God's intention that we figure this all out on our own. All of the terminology he uses, not just in this letter, but in other letters, to describe what Jesus' church should be like is in the plural. Brothers and sisters. There's plurals right there. Disciples. Singular? Nope. Multiple. Living stones. Many members of one body, right? So there's these plurals all the way through. And it just reminds us we're not isolated individual marathon runners, but rather runners together. We should all have running coaches, and we should all be running coaches at some point in the journey. We all have something to learn, and we all have something to teach others. Brothers and sisters, for the mere sake of exercise and improved health, I joined a running club in the spring with the goal to run a 5K race, well, and hopefully lower my cholesterol numbers. There were coaches who ran with us, and there were other trainees in the group, or disciples, if you will, because they were disciplining themselves to run. And they were going through this Learn to Run program, as it was called. And it was that combination, actually, rather than me running solo in my neighborhood, that resulted in me achieving my goal, rather than giving up. I had tried many times. I joined gyms, three weeks, four weeks, that was it. I didn't go anymore. Right? And a lot of that was because I was on my own. And truth to tell, since I ran that 5K race back in June, I really haven't done a whole lot of running after that. Why? Because I'm back to being by myself. And if you think about a coal in the campfire, we've been having some campfires uh, recently. If you have a coal there in the fire and it's glowing red hot there in the, in the fire pit, and you take it out and you set it aside, what do you notice? The glow starts to fade. Right? When it's removed from the group, it starts to die out. But when you put it back in there again, that glow comes back. Right? We need to be together. If that was done for the mere sake of exercise, how much more then is it necessary for us with the far loftier and more challenging goal of godliness to run with others on the same journey? Both coaches who have been where we are and fellow runners in this race who can encourage and challenge us to press on. Paul says, imitate me and others who walk, whose walk demonstrates that they're walking by the Spirit. Here at Fellowship Oshawa, we are constantly encouraging you all to get into a discipling relationship with someone. That's that whole coaching, running together thing. Simon and Garfunkel may have sung, I am a rock, I am an island, but you won't find that taught or modeled anywhere in Scripture. In fact, Hebrews 10.25 says, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is not God's design that you should press on alone. You forfeit the opportunity to be encouraged by others when you aren't with the group. There's also the risk when you're alone of being misdirected or discouraged out of running altogether. Occasionally when I ran or when we ran as a group, people yelled things out of passing cars. I'm sure it was um, encouragement. 
Uh, actually, judging by the laughs and the body language, I'm going to assume that that was not the case at all. And at times, I just plain didn't want to do this training thing again. Maybe it was hot. Maybe I was tired after a long day. I just didn't feel like it. Paul says that there are bad examples as well that we need to be mindful of, that we have to guard against. Verse 19 says, their end is destruction. Their minds are set on earthly things. We need people around us who are looking out for us, and we need to look out for others as well. It actually keeps us sharp to do so. And we need to be focused on the model. Right? Last verses in that chapter say, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into his glory into a body like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Notice that again. How is he going to do that? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He has the power to subject the universe to his authority. If he's got that kind of power, then the promise is certain and sure that he's going to transform our lowly bodies into a glorious body like his. We are going to be transformed. That's the prize of the upward call. No more migraines. No more ulcerative colitis. No more allergies. No more back pain or frozen shoulders. None of that. Even better, no more sin. I don't know about you, but as I get older, uh, the, the older I get, the more I look forward to being free of that. There are so many things that the enemy can put his finger on and remind me of how I've messed up. And I know we don't focus on those things, but they hurt me because I realize that those were some of the things that caused that hammer to drive the nails into my Savior's hands. And he gladly and joyfully forgives me for those things. But I want to, I use that as my motivation to say, I want to be more like him. I want to hurt and, and sorrow him less. I know that's not really a, a good verb, but you know what I mean. I don't want to cause him sorrow anymore. I want him to be joyful when he looks at me and say, that's my kid, and he's looking more and more like me all the time. And there will come a day, there will come a day when we will rid of this sin nature. We won't have those unwanted thoughts. We won't do those things that we regret. We won't say those things that hurt others and hurt ourselves. It'll be gone. We'll be free of it. We can't even imagine what that's like. In my mind, the best I can imagine is a stronger and healthier me, because that's how limited I am as a human being. And man, it is going to be so much better than that. Those times where you do wrong or think or feel wrong and you loathe yourself for it, no more. No more. <laughs> what freedom. What joy. No wonder Paul can say, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It becomes a, a joyful thing to strive and press on towards sanctification, doesn't it? When we start thinking, just by doing that, I bring joy to my Savior and joy to God my Father. 
man, I'm going to give it my best. Are you here this morning with an emptiness inside of you? Are you seeking something, some kind of meaning to what feels like a pointless existence? Jesus is that meaning, that purpose. Maybe you're here and you've gone to church for a while, maybe a long time, maybe your whole life, but you've been faking it. You've been putting on a facade, playing Christian. I'm not judging you, because I did it for years. Today, today is the day to change all that. Today, God's calling you to choose to repent. Repent just means turn yourself around 180 degrees. You were going this way, this was you living your life, you're turning it around and you're doing the exact opposite. It's not going to be about me anymore. Maybe you have been going with the crowd, maybe you've been living for yourself. Remember that passage that talked about their God is their belly? It wasn't just about eating. When they refer to a belly like that in the scriptures, they're talking about the appetites. So you were chasing your appetites, just your desires and the Bible would call it your lusts. So you're maybe going after sex or power or money or popularity. Whatever it was that you were chasing, seeking to satisfy something in yourself. Choose today to turn it around, to live for Jesus. Repent, start running uphill against the crowd. That's really what you're doing. It's going to be really hard. Just going to tell you that flat out. It's going to be really hard. You need the power that comes from Jesus. The one who is able to put all things in subjection, right? You need his power. And you need the coaching and mentoring that comes from God's people. We want to come alongside you. I think we've made it pretty clear this morning that we haven't got it all figured out yet. We're all on this journey. We just want you to join the journey with us. We want to help you as much as we can. And we believe that God will show you things that can help and encourage us as well. The rest of the crowd, their end is destruction. They are literally running off of a cliff into the pit of hell as fast as their legs will take them. Turn. Turn and be saved. Your situation is desperate this morning if you are outside of Christ. If you are not in Christ, as we have talked about, if you have not had that moment where you have said, God, I admit, just like you say in your Bible, I am a sinner and I am helpless to help myself. I need you and I want you. I want the forgiveness that you offer in Jesus Christ. And I want to take that this morning and I want to give you my life. I want it to go the way you want it not the way I want it. I'm willing to give up my dreams and whatever those are because God's word promises that he's going to give you new dreams and new desires. And they're going to be so much better. We're pleading with you this morning. Take hold of that salvation that Jesus offers. Come and talk with one of us after the service, Jermaine or Chris or myself or any of the members here at Fellowship Washington. We would love nothing more than to walk with you on that. Don't get hung up either on on the possibility of embarrassment. Maybe you have been living a facade. Maybe you've been living like a Christian, but you've never really given God that sovereignty in your life either. Don't let the potential or the imagined embarrassment of somebody finding out that you've been faking it, don't let that hold you back. Because man, the joy and the freedom that comes with the forgiveness and the restoration is unbelievable, so much worth it. And the rest of us, man, we have, we have all 
messed up. There's not a single one of us that's going to judge you if you're in that place this morning. So do it. Do it today. For those of you that are God's children, remember our motivation, we are His. Our mandate, press on. And most importantly, our model, Jesus Christ. In fact, this being the third Sunday, we are going to remember Jesus Christ through the broken bread and outpoured juice. Going to um, just bring a couple of things to your direction as we do that, as we prepare to take communion. I want to remind you of a couple of things. Number one, these things, these items on the table are just symbols. Nothing magical happens to them. They're just bread. Well, in this case, they're actually gluten-free crackers. Um, and it's just juice. And it will remain just bread and just juice. Uh, there is some teaching out there that, that teaches that it becomes the actual body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what Scripture teaches. All right? I'll tell you why that's important. If it did become the actual body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would be as if we were sacrificing him over Sunday after Sunday. And that's not true. The scripture teaches us that Jesus Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust. It's finished. If we were re-sacrificing him every time we had communion, then it wouldn't have been finished. It is done. So these are just symbols, but they're important symbols. God teaches through symbols all the time. And that bread, or in this case the crackers, we actually break the crackers intentionally, not because we're cheap and we want to give you small pieces. We break it because that's a symbol of his body that was broken for us. So we want to be true to the symbol. God cares and protects his symbols, and we want to do that same thing. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed. It was poured out for us. That teaches us that God required that blood be shed so that we could be forgiven. It was a full sacrifice. It wasn't just a donation. The whole thing was given. It also teaches us that Jesus was an actual human because he had an actual human body to be broken and he had an actual life to give. His blood flowed for us. That is important. God became man to take man's place before God and receive our judgment in our place. That is huge. And that's what this speaks of. And in 1 Corinthians 11, I want to read um, just a, a couple of other verses because I just want to caution you. It says, in the verses after Paul talks about this, he says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. That is huge. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, and it's, it's kind of a common stereotype that if you do something bad, then, you know, God's going to send lightning down to strike you. I'm not saying that necessarily. But there are consequences for us not taking th God's things seriously. 
And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ yet, then we ask you to not partake of this because we love you and we don't want to see you bring judgment on yourself as God's word indicates. What we really want is for you to come to Christ. If you are not there yet, maybe this morning is the morning that you say, I'm going to do business with God today. I'm going to make this right. And then we would rejoice to have you part of our family because you become part of the family of God. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you need to examine yourself as well. Because there's a passage, too, that talks about the fact that if you have something against a brother, or if a brother has something against you, you need to make that right first. Right? If you have unconfessed sin in your life, if you have been participating in something, and you have not brought that to God and asked forgiveness, He knows. And that becomes an issue. And again, He doesn't take His symbols lightly. Please, I ask you, examine yourself carefully. Talk to God about those things. And then rejoice. This is a celebration. We remember, yes, the broken body and the poured out blood. But we remember the freedom he's purchased for us, the forgiveness he's purchased for us, the adoption as children of God that he has made possible for us. I want to just read... A poem. Well, it's really a hymn, actually. And then I'm going to call Chris and Jermaine up here to help distribute these uh, emblems. It goes like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair... Telling of evil yet within, upward I look, and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Does that blow your mind? Behold him there, the once slain lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. We are his, right? My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. Chris, Jermaine, would you come up here, please?